Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Another episode of the Weeds on the Fox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias here with Dylan Matthews, ProPublica's Dara Lind. Uh, and we are going to talk today. Well, we got a pretty hot white paper, uh, but we also wanted to talk first about the, the lab leak hypothesis, uh, which has been in the news a lot lately, has gained sort of more mainstream respectability, up to and including uh the, the president, Joe Biden, seems to have ordered some kind of renewed inquiry and, and emphasis uh, from the American government on the origins of COVID. Um, th- this is like a big media criticism story. I think a lot of people, myself included, have had like a lot of things to say about the media's original covering of this and what that means and what we can tell from that. But I was really want to try to talk about like what is at stake here in in concrete terms like why does this matter other than like i guess i would like to know where covid came from it was a big deal i'm curious but like i'm curious about a lot of things like you know what's the origin of the indo-european languages and you know how did upright locomotives evolve um are there like stakes here like does it matter to really know where this came from because i'm skeptical about that so let's let's back up for a second so lab leak theory has become sort of a shorthand for a bunch of different things and and you've written about this at some length matt but sort of what's the hypothesis we're, we're considering here is it specifically the uh, chinese government was working on certain viruses in a lab specifically doing uh research meant to make them more virulent and then they accidentally got out is this a hypothesis about an intentional release what's the universe of lab leak theories so we, we sort of know what we're talking about right and and so i mean look obviously if the chinese government deliberately engineered a bioweapon that they then released upon the world uh, to, I don't know what, I mean, that, that would be a big deal in foreign policy terms, right? If we were victims of a deliberate bioweapons attack by the Chinese government. Uh, but that doesn't seem to me to be something that anyone really thinks, um, in part because it, 
I mean, it doesn't make sense. They attacked themselves and right. didn't bother to develop a vaccine uh, for for the disease. Um, Flawless diversion. Right. Uh, whereas, you know, the most I, I guess like the most plausible sort of like detailed scientific accounts I've seen are that uh, this virus seems to be derived from a bat coronavirus that was perhaps detected in a cave that is very, very far away from Wuhan, China, such that it is unlikely that it, through natural, sort of unintermediated means, arrived in Wuhan, but that rather samples were taken from there, were brought to the Wuhan Institute for Virology, and the virus then escaped from there through some kind of mishap. Um, and we know that mishaps happen in, in laboratories. Um, this is a, a real aspect of uh, human existence. It's also the plot of the stand, uh, which is an, an excellent book about a virus destroying humanity. So, you know, shit happens. Um, I mean, you don't want to say like, whoops, you know, like no biggie. Um, but at the same time, like, even if that's not true, like, it seems like the argument that laboratories dealing with incredibly hazardous viruses should be more careful with their shit is like very persuasive. And the persuasiveness of that argument doesn't actually hinge on the specific facts here. Right. I mean, the there is kind of a secondary theory that would obviously have massive implications if true, which is that the uh, virus in it, the form in which it escaped, you know, w- was not genetically identical to whatever would have existed in the wild and been brought into the lab, but could have been, you know, somehow genetically modified, you know, in a way that ultimately made it more virulent and deadly. Uh, whether that was for purely biological purposes or for, you know, purposes of biological weaponry. But like the lab leak hypothesis itself doesn't tell us anything about that because there are plenty of perfectly benign reasons that researchers would want to study infectious diseases, including potential novel coronaviruses. And so there's a certain extent to which, and you know, this is, this gets back into the kind of media criticism strain of it because the reason that this was initially floated a year ago back when we knew very, very little about, you know, the virus itself and even less about the, you know, how it had gone from a, an infection in Wuhan to an infection in the rest of the world was brought to the kind of American public by China hawks with the kind of implication that if China had done this, it could be that they were doing it for nefarious purposes. And it could be kind of, it, it would be another indication that China, despite being an aspirate, you know, aspiring global superpower does not necessarily have like humanity's best interests at heart. But that's not actually, you know, as as you've been saying, that's distinct from the question of how it happened. It is, however, relevant to the question of what it means, because we know that there was a suppression of information within China as the virus was spreading domestically there. That's that already did a lot to impede the global response to the coronavirus just because it was several weeks in which infection was spreading without any visibility whatsoever by the global community. The question of whether that was an attempt to cover up a human error or whether it was simply a straight up, you know, authoritarian domestic response where they didn't want to look bad for any reason, it doesn't have domestic policy implications. It should shape our understanding of what the relationship between China and the rest of the world is. And, you know, frankly, how likely it is that 
any potential future domestic disaster that happens in China, a country of a billion people, is likely to affect the rest of the world. I'm I'm reading Midnight in Chernobyl right now, which I'm sure a bunch of Weeds listeners have already read or at least familiar with. And so that's kind of an influence in a lot of my thinking about this because so much of the story of, you know, the the kind of pattern of the international discovery of Chernobyl was almost identical in some ways to the pattern of the response to coronavirus insofar as it wasn't at all known what had happened until it was all it had already escaped beyond and I mean more so in the Chernobyl case because you know nuclear fallout was already fallen on Sweden a couple of days after the explosion but you know the instinct by the domestic powers that be to just pretend everything was hunky dory to both their own citizens and the rest of the world ended up breaking down not because their own citizens were able to find out the truth but because it was something that they couldn't successfully contain within their borders and therefore representations about something had to be made to the international community so yeah so the chernobyl case seems like there there were a few lessons there uh one was uh the international community probably can't trust sort of uh nuclear safety reports coming out of the ussr that didn't turn out to be much of a problem because of events that happened shortly after Chernobyl. Yep. Um, but I don't, I'm sort of curious what reading that book, your sort of meta takeaways are, because as as Matt says, I really want to know where, where COVID came from. There are different policy responses tailored to different potential causes of the outbreak. If, uh, if the chain of events was that this was a bat-borne disease, uh, and the bats transmitted it to humans through wet markets. That suggests we should be doing something to crack down on on live animal markets, uh, at least in certain animals. If it came out of sort of experiments meant to make coronaviruses more virulent, I think that strengthens the case that was already strong against funding scientists who want to make super viruses. But I don't know what to make of sort of the the governance lessons here that sort of the Chernobyl case implies that there, there are things that we learned about the Soviet state and the international monitoring system that needed to be fixed. And I'm less sure what those kinds of changes would be in the case of COVID if it turns out lab leak is true. So I think that it's less about it's less about governance than it is about kind of the international order, right? Because one of the things that really has struck me reading Midnight in Chernobyl is that the American and other Western scientists trying to piece together, you know, trying to like work backwards from the data they were receiving about fallout and what ultimately they were being provided by, you know, Soviet, uh, by the Soviet government in its effort to like, just kind of desperately get whatever intellectual firepower it could was that they had a lot of trouble understanding what was going on from the outset, because the reactor model was so different than what had been developed in the West and like in ways that made it susceptible to exactly this kind of meltdown. (laughs) But it does seem that that was a pretty strong argument for more international cooperation, you know, for like more that that international cooperation is mutually beneficial, not just because like la 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 humanity, but because if something goes wrong in a closed political system and you need to tap into outside expertise to fix it, you can't read everybody up quickly on the particular technologies that you've been hoarding. So that certainly does speak strongly to the lab leak hypothesis because it 
gets us directly into the question that you were kind of edging into there, Dylan, about whether we need to ban research to, that is designed to make diseases more effective. And it gets us pretty squarely into the question of how can we distinguish between legitimate biological research and bioweapons research when being carried out by governments that may not be representing the true purpose of things to the international community. Chernobyl, you know, for it, it was in fact a civilian reactor, but so much of the history of both the Soviet and U.S., you know, nuclear programs was that peacetime technology was kind of siphoned off from a big pipe of funding into weapons technology. And the question of how you engage in international cooperation on the kind of peacetime tech side, not least because it's going to make it easier for you to get a global response to crises on the scale of the novel coronavirus, while trying to police this very difficult to police line between peacetime and wartime research is, I think, you know, something that I don't have good answers to, but it really does get to questions about what we think the current international order on research and bioweapons is, and whether we think that that this threat had been sufficiently addressed by biological weapons treaties and a sanctions regime and all of that was true. But I also think it's worth dwelling a little bit on on the animal markets question, because, you know, the the reason there was initially a strong assumption that that the virus would have would have crossed over from from animals is that that's just like what we know. You know, like that that's how most new virus outbreaks arise. Um, and of course, there are many scientists who who view that as still the the most likely um origin story for this based on what they know. Uh, but the the reason that the media landscape was sort of able to snap into action so quickly with, you know, explainers and like Vox did a really good video about the threat of pathogens from live animal markets. The reason that like infrastructure was so good is because all of those points are true, right? Like whether or not it is like actually true that this particular virus came from bats to pangolins to humans via a particular poorly regulated market in Southern China. Um, like again, I, all, all my information comes from movies. Um, that's the plot of contagion, right? Um, and the reason that's <laughs> just like the reason the stand is about a bioweapon leaking from a lab and the reason contagion is about zoonotic virus transfer through uh, animal markets in Asia is that like those are both real things that happen. So people use them as plots for different things. Um, and in the case of the live animal markets, right, the case for regulating them more stringently is in part that it's dangerous and also is in part that the activity does not seem to have super high value. At least it's obviously easy for us, like, sitting here in DC to be like, what do you even need these markets for? Um, but I think you can even make the case, you know, like in Chinese to Chinese officials that like, this is not, this is not such a good situation, you know, that the, that the costs of tightening this up are actually really, really low and the benefits are potentially quite high. Um, so then it becomes a very sort of easy kind of comfortable conversation like there's no there's no real reason to think that the chinese government should be like fanatically committed to poorly supervised 
animal markets that like, you know, like experts could get in. We could have a conference about it. Like we could address this problem. We should address this problem, whatever was going on with COVID. Uh, Whereas the lab leak is tougher because there's a community of researchers who believes that this line of research is very valuable, right? Like they, there was a pre-pandemic debate about gain-of-function research, and gain-of-function research was not restricted because people think there's something important about this, and the international relations aspect of it is also much, much harder. Like, it would be easy to verify whether or not live animals were being sold in major urban cities in China. It's intrinsically very difficult to tell whether a foreign government is doing secret biological research, uh, because, you know, they wouldn't tell you. And when you see some of these things, right, I mean, when I look back at the the original debate, I wrote at great length, I think that a lot of the reporting on what Tom Cotton was saying about this was unfair. The flip side is that, you know, the shtick he was doing at that point, which was like, oh, they have this lab there, like, they gotta let us in the lab, like, we need to ask questions about the lab. Obviously, the Chinese government is not going to let China hawks send American spies into their biological labs so that they can, quote unquote, like thoroughly investigate the art. Like that's true whether they're guilty or whether they're innocent, right? Like if the American government secretly released a deadly pathogen into the world, we wouldn't let Chinese spies come crawling around our labs. And also if we didn't do that, you know, but they had some like just asking questions, plausible sounding theories. We wouldn't. So the the international relations aspect of the lab leak is just really tricky. It's it's hard to do global governance in an environment where the governments don't trust each other and where they have like totally good reason to not trust each other. Like it's not it's not some like big misunderstanding that the Chinese do not want foreigners poking around their labs or that foreigners would love to poke around Chinese labs. Like it's a it's a bona fide conflict of interest. This is honest to goodness where I find myself wondering about the and this is dipping deeply into territory that, you know, is more familiar for Vox Media Podcast Network podcast worldly. But like, by the same token by which, of course, Chinese government officials would have very good reason not to let American spies into their labs, there's like a decent argument for whether they are guilty or innocent of bioengineering this virus. Chinese government officials would not particularly want to allow international sanctions monitors to check out their bioresearch labs. And conversely, that the U.S. probably wouldn't be open to a, a bigger, a like bilateral transparency argument that allowed international observers to check out U.S. labs that have some relationship to, you know, U.S. defense policy and could be engaging in gain-of-function research in a way that could be weaponized. They're really, I'm not sure that this doesn't fundamentally boil down to, like, we signed a bunch of treaties in the 20th century that were designed to kind of restrain the horrors of weaponry from being developed in any given country. Do we think that those actually still matter or do we have a paper compliance regime in which in fact enough governments think that they can, you know, beat the rap that there's kind of widespread or at very least that superpowers are engaging in, in, you know, fairly flagrant disobedience of the existing weapons treaties we have. 
Yeah, I'm I'm fairly optimistic about sort of treaty regimes. Bio, bioweapons are tough uh, just because uh, as with sort of nuclear power versus nuclear weapons, there's some overlap between legitimate uh, biomedical research and, and sort of weapons development. One of my favorite stories in this regard is uh, Viktor Zadanov, who was uh, a Soviet virologist who helped lead the global effort to eradicate smallpox. And so it's it probably responsible for millions of lives being saved every year. Reportedly, one reason he was interested in that was that he knew that if we got to a point in the world where you didn't need to inoculate people against smallpox because it had already been eradicated, then uh, Soviet smallpox weapons would be much more powerful. Uh, and he was he was sort of also had a, a foot in their sort of bioweapons development program. So it's this is all sort of incredibly intertwined. But. In general, I think the track record of sort of WMD, uh, sort of biochemical nuclear weapons containment uh, treaties, is pretty good. Uh, the violations are very newsworthy when North Korea pulls out of the nuclear nonproliferation treaty. Like, that's a big deal. But in general, the nuclear nonproliferation treaty has worked reasonably well. I, I think there was a recent case day on this that I found rather persuasive that was also going into what it meant for post-Soviet Eastern Europe that you had all these former constituent republics of the USSR that had nuclear weapons. Like Kazakhstan just like had nuclear weapons lying around. Ukraine did uh, because uh, they were a part of the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union placed some of their weapons there. And it was not inevitable that they just gave those weapons up and dismantled them as part of an international effort to contain the spread of nuclear weapons, but they did. And I think a large part of why they did and a large part of why South Africa gave up their nuclear weapons after developing them uh, was this kind of international regime. It's harder with hegemons. Like, I, it's it's relatively easy to bully Kazakhstan or, or, or even it's very easy to get Nelson Mandela to agree to give up apartheid nuclear weapons, <laughs> but it's obviously going to be trickier with China. But I don't know. I, I'm, I'm a relative optimist on the effectiveness of these regimes. And part of what's, what's been happening with the Biological Weapons Convention is that it has a budget in like the single digit millions a year. It's like it's crazy how little it's funded. And this is something that people in, in sort of the biosecurity space have been yelling about for years. It's just we have this international infrastructure. We have no inspectors. It's not like there's like Hans Blix behind a, a door waiting to, to go and check stuff out. Like they just do not exist. And it would be a relatively easy and cheap thing for countries like the U.S. and China to invest in and, and try to improve. But that was was a long neglected area before COVID. And it's, it's not clear that a lesson from COVID will be we need to invest in those kinds of structures. All right. Let's take a break. And, and I want to ask a little bit more about gain of function research. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. 
With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. So, you know, we're talking about treaties and, and things like that. And, you know, you can you can sort of try to find enforceable ways to ban things. Uh, but but right now, I mean, this is not a question of like some scuffle regime uh, maybe out there trying to engineer viruses to become more deadly. Uh, this is a, a welcome and overtly done line of research. Um, the, the U.S. government funds some of it. Uh, scientists are quite open that this is what they're doing. And, you know, there's a way of like framing the case against it that makes it sound like so insane that it's like, well, wh- why would we be paying people to engineer deadly viruses? But but it it does happen. And like, Dylan, what's your like, why? What What is the case for this? Why do why do people think this is a worthwhile thing to be spending their time doing? So I think I'm, I'm most familiar with the debate within uh, sort of American and European scientific sectors. And so there might be sort of rationales and arguments within sort of the Chinese uh, scientific community about this. They're, they're somewhat different. But in the West, this became a kind of live debate around 2012 or thereabouts because of uh, some controversies with bird flu. Um, that sort of listeners my age or older will remember in, in 2007 that there was uh, a big bird flu scare, a uh, bunch of, of new cases. Uh, and what was interesting about bird flu is that it was way less transmissible than the normal flu, but it was way deadlier. I think a, a typical flu, sort of a, a small fraction of 1% of, of people die. Uh, this It's more like uh, 15, 20% of people infected die. And so this guy named uh, Ron Fouchier at Erasmus University in, in Amsterdam and another uh, scientist named uh, Yoshi Kawaoka um, at Wisconsin-Madison both started working on ways to make bird flu more virulent in mammals. And so the specifically, they were trying to take this incredibly deadly disease and make it easier to transmit. And they succeeded. Uh, Ron Fouchier figured out a way to, to make it spread through the air between ferrets, uh, who, are, who are often used as a human model in, in these kinds of experiments. So if you talk to, to Ron Fouchier and, and, and Yoshi, they will tell you uh, that they are doing this to help develop new vaccines and treatments for viruses. That one of the, the highest impact things you can do is figure out how to uh, respond to future pandemics, uh, come up with uh, treatments and vaccines before as yet unevolved diseases evolve, um, and that they're helping to do that. 
this vaccine bit seems like a place where we have at least like I think genuinely new information that is relevant to understanding it, right? I mean, as we talked about last week, right, the the science part of developing uh, extremely reliable mRNA vaccines against uh, SARS-CoV-2 was done really, really quickly, right? Like so right. quickly that the <laughs> to the point where like if that had been done like literally instantaneously – like just off the shelf, it would have made almost no difference that 98% of the time between like when I got vaccinated and when the science was done on this had to do with the first the regulatory issues and then the manufacturing issues. And like today, right? I mean, there is a huge ongoing massive death toll in developing countries because, again, of manufacturing issues, right? Like, there's a big problem, right? Like, we should be both trying to address the acute need for more vaccines, but we should be really thinking in terms of the next pandemic, what can we do to speed up, I would say, like, not the basic science research, but the, like, actual part of this where the billions of vaccine doses are made and somehow delivered to people, uh, which, you know, if you had asked me two years ago, I would have been like, oh, yeah, like making vaccines faster. Like, you know, uh, maybe it doesn't work cost benefit wise, but like I, I I see what you're talking about there. Like that makes sense. Accelerating vaccine science is really good. Um, but now it seems like our vaccine science is like actually excellent. And it's possibly our like vial production or plastic bags or, or whatever else is, is the actual sticking point here. Right. Well, and has there been any, you know, as this has kind of become apparent in this like real world context over the last year, and at the same time, as it's become clear that on any level beyond vaccine production, lack of knowledge about a specific virus and its, you know, etiology and its potential variation leaves a lot of people in the dark for a very long time, even if we know what kinds of what what this kind of virus generally looks like. Has there been any kind of reopening of this debate? And does it seem that this, you know, kind of the gut sense would be that this substantially weakens the argument that gain of function research is, you know, necessary for future pandemic response? Is that has that been how it's being perceived? That's certainly like my perception. Um, my sense is that the sort of bioethicists and virologists who are who are heavily involved in this debate are like working on COVID. And so that the debate itself has been tabled to a degree uh, for the last 15 months. Um, but like I know uh, Kawaoka, uh, the Wisconsin professor, has been working on COVID research. Um, I'm less sure about Fouchier, but like. Uh, a lot of the bioethicists who love to argue about this, there have been a million bioethical questions for them to weigh in on and study <laughs> in, in the last year. The main detractor of gain-of-function research uh, was this guy named Mark Lipsitch at Harvard, who's become sort of in, in the great epidemiology boom of 2020-2021, has, has become a fairly prominent epidemiologist. And so there's a, a weird degree in which it's been on hold. I think it matters in two ways. One is... In the event that lab leak is true, which I think is still, I want to be clear, like a, a non-zero but not high probability. Um, I don't know if, of anyone who puts the probability above 50% for it, but but certainly worth looking into. Previously, we were guessing what could go wrong with gain-of-function research. If it turns out the gain-of-function research has already resulted in a global like pandemic, 
that should meaningfully increase our confidence that it's a bad idea. It's an existence proof of something that had previously only been hypothesized. But I think the other side of it is it should decrease our relative confidence that this kind of research is very sort of is essential or would meaningfully accelerate treatments in the event of a pandemic for the reasons that, that Matt said. A, we have all these other technologies that allow us to respond pretty rapidly. But B, like, it was just nowhere to be seen. Of Like, there weren't gain-of-function researchers coming out of the woodwork in the last year saying, hey, I've, I've actually modeled a disease that looked a lot like SARS-CoV-2. Here's how I, uh, how I would approach it. Now, gain-of-function defenders will tell you that that's because they don't think there's been enough gain-of-function research in the COVID area. And like maybe that's that's sort of a hard to disprove counterfactual and true gain of function research has never been tried. Yeah, it's sort of you have gain of function Trotskyism. But I think what Lipsitch has always said is it's not that there's literally no case where you can imagine this being a good idea. Like it's easy to come up with hypotheticals where this could be beneficial in vaccine or, or treatment production. It's just equally easy to come up with scenarios where it kills millions of people. <laughs> and you have to like have some kind of real risk assessment. And it's really hard to come up with plausible likelihoods for those two outcomes where that cost-benefit analysis comes out looking favorable to this as, as sort of a line of inquiry. Yeah. I mean, it's it's really bad. I, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> this, this seems like a dumb point. Um, but this pandemic has been really bad. And I mean, everybody knows it's been really bad, but in some ways, I kind of feel like the, um, the like general incentive structure of the media is to like always talk a lot about whatever bad thing happens to be happening at any given, you know, point in time. And there's always some bad stuff happening in, in the world. So I think the extent to which this is like arguably like the worst thing that has happened in multiple generations of, human existence can get a little bit underrated, you know, um, like the shitty economy that existed in 2008, 2009, 2010, like that got a lot of press. Uh, and, and it was a it was a big deal. It was a big deal for America. But like in global poverty terms, like we were making progress then, right? Like the neediest in the world were in fact getting better off and there was super rapid economic growth and China and India, these kind of like happy stories uh, you could tell. 2020, by contrast, I mean, you know, America had a sort of effective uh, economic policy response, um, one of the faster vaccine rollouts, hundreds of thousands of people died and it was awful. But much better off than actually most of of the world. And it's still not, I I mean, it's not at all clear like where this ends from a, from a global perspective or when, or how much worse things will become. So you need a, you need to clear like a really high bar for benefits to, I think have even like a small elevation of the risk of, of sort of global pandemics. Um, this used to always be on people's list of like, here's something you should talk about more. And, and it's, it's kind of amazing that like, even after living through one, I almost feel like we don't talk enough about preventing global pandemics. Like there has not been a um, law passed by the United States Congress that is like really focused on pandemic preparedness in like a big way. It hasn't been a major sort of point of, of debate with of like anything really going on, even as we've seen just the incredible toll. Yeah, I mean, I think that 
this is arguably the strongest argument for the significance of whether the lab leak hypothesis is true. It's kind of this metacognitive thing, because I think it seems to a certain extent that even when people are acknowledging that this is probably the worst thing to visit humanity for the last several generations, there's something of a, well, sometimes acts of God happen attitude, whether or not you're actually speaking in a theistic way about that or not. You know, the fact that it, that the last really, really enormous global pandemic was a little over a hundred years ago, uh, has, I think, made a lot of people think, okay, yes, this is a once in a century event. We've just lived through our version of that. And if the lab leak hypothesis is true, I mean, okay, if the wet market hypothesis is true, then it is just like, well, sometimes things happen. You know, sometimes, sometimes the AIDS virus jumps to humans. Sometimes new versions of things happen. And sometimes those are particularly deadly. Sometimes they're particularly easy to transmit. In very rare cases, they're both. This, the idea that viruses would be evolving quickly enough to have something in that Venn diagram center is like not how evolution generally works. But if the lab leak hypothesis is true, then there are going to be more and more occasions in the absence of banning gain of function research, there are going to be more and more occasions in which all it takes is a human error to unleash something like this on the world. And so if that is true, then it is worth thinking about this not as a once-in-a-century event, but as potentially the opening of a century where this is a much bigger deal than it was in the 20th century. And how seriously does humanity want to take that risk? And to what extent are are scientists going to want to give up their prerogative to continue to push the boundaries of human knowledge? To what extent are countries going to want to give up their prerogative to develop both scientific and military hegemony? Like Those are downstream of the question of, do we need to be taking infectious disease, thinking about infectious disease more like we think about global warming, where it is getting more urgent over time that this needs to be addressed as a matter of international collective will. And I think before... It's it's funny. There's ways in which COVID seems like it's it's increased the urgency of of sort of a global pandemic preparedness strategy in obvious ways. But there's also a way in which it is it is sort of polarized and politicized something that previously could have gone through channels for relatively depolarized issues. Mm. Matt sometimes jokes about this being secret Congress, but there there is a real phenomenon in DC of of issues that aren't polarized on partisan lines as as thoroughly as something like healthcare or taxes getting really meaningful changes done um during the trump years uh they they increased the cigarette age to 21 uh and late obama years they completely redid regulations of chemicals and international cooperation on pandemics and funding for pandemic preparedness in the us if you had asked me in like 2018, I would have said feels like the same kind of thing mm-hmm. that there there is not an obvious partisan valence here. It costs money, but it doesn't cost a lot of money in the scheme of the the federal budget. It seems like something that should be be able to proceed on on sort of a out of the spotlight uh, by sort of good civil servants focusing on an issue outside sort of the center of public debate. You can't really do that anymore. Uh, COVID has kind of t- taken away the luxury of of treating this as as sort of a good governance issue, separate from partisan sniping. Like, and you can still do things once they're in that sphere, but it's a lot harder. Right, and the mechanism is completely different. You need to be able to mobilize enough people who believe that this is the most important thing to get it on a partisan agenda. I mean. Maybe I uh, 
one thing that's been interesting to me about the lab leak uh, debate is that conservatives seem to me to perceive American politics as consisting of a competition between um, the Republican Party and the New York Times. And so they see like a starkly polarized ideological debate in which like some headlines that they don't like were in conflict with Tom Cotton. But like the position of Joe Biden has always been – always been, I think, actually somewhat close to Cotton's position, up to and including uh, the new inquiry that he's ordering, his remarks as of last February, ads he ran against Trump saying that Trump was being too credulous about Xi Jinping. And so, you know, there is a universe. But I mean, I should say I was making fun of conservatives, but I feel like Democrats sometimes do this too, like that, like parties elected officials feel that like they are obligated to defend aspects of like cultural ephemera that conservatives attack that are upheld by people who they think are going to vote for them. But like, you know, liberals are not going to turn against Joe Biden uh, if he like shakes hands with Tom Cotton and they go do like a joint event about the need for a big international crackdown on the scientific research and how terrible it was that the media was excessively dismissive of this. Like it would just make Biden more popular. You are allowed in the political system to like make depolarizing gambits if you want to. It's just gone a little bit out of fashion, uh, starting with with Trump, who absolutely was like rigidly opposed to ever distancing himself from anyone who he perceived as supporting him. But like that's not the way things have traditionally been done. Uh, nothing about this is that close to the like interest group core of any parties, right? Like there are no, like progressives just don't like really have any like equities at stake in this whole kind of thing. And I would think, I mean, you never know, right? I mean, like it's, it's easy to turn anything into uh, just like a partisan shit show, but like this could also just be a thing where some politicians, you know, just agree that they should go do something. And and then they do even in a high profile way. That seems awfully I mean, it seems awfully optimistic about humanity for a dude. I think it's too too sunny and naive. Pointing out that, like, whether or not the Chinese government was doing anything nefarious, they still wouldn't want people they perceive as representing the other side to see how they work. I mean, I I agree. I I mean, I think the substantive problem is challenging. Um, I just do think that, like, getting some political consensus in the United States is doable. and also just that like it would be it would be healthy it would be to gain some uh distance between elected officials and their kind of like media proxies that that represent themselves um and you know i mean it's like it's like why do bad articles get written and like we who are in the industry are aware that it's like sometimes your job is to like write up some shit that happened on the Sunday shows and you're operating under a lot of time pressure and you don't, you don't even necessarily like want to do it. It's not a story in your area of expertise. Like these things all go awry in like a million different ways. And people doing politics should not like, I think like should try to triangulate away from that kind of stuff. Um, I don't know. Dylan, you got any last thoughts before we turn to white papers? 
Uh, no, I was just going to say that this is this is also a sunny white paper that that increases my um, my my faith in the sturdiness of American democracy. So we can we can keep the optimistic string going. It's delightful. Excellent. Okay. Support for the weeds comes from Hydro. Finding the time to exercise can be hard, but with the Hydro rower, finding time for a twenty-minute full-body workout can be a piece of cake. Hydro is a state-of-the-art, low-impact home rowing machine that's actually designed by rowers. Hydro caters to all fitness levels, and their classes are taught by Olympians and world-class athletes alike. Eric Maxwell, from the business side of things here at Vox, got to try it out. Here's what he thought. The Hydro definitely felt like a nice workout. It felt challenging, intuitive. It kind of felt natural without being too strenuous. It was just nice to have a menu of options to find something super customized and just make it feel fun. This spring, you can join the growing rowing community at Hydro. You can head over to hydro.com and use code WEEDS to save up to $400 off your Hydro. That's H-Y-D-R-O-W.com code WEEDS to save up to $400. Hydro.com code WEEDS. I had a little bit of a different emotional reaction to this white paper than Dylan. Uh, But Enrico Cantoni and Vincent Pons, uh, they look at the question of do voter ID laws reduce fraud? Do they stop people from voting? Uh, Political scientists have looked at this before and I think generally find that the answer is no. Um, This is a bigger, uh, more rich research set, which is also newer because more of these laws have been passed. And they confirm with the difference in differences design on a 1.6 billion observations panel data set. You love to see it. That voter ID laws have no negative effect on registration or turnout overall or for any subgroup. Um, They hold to a large number of specifications. They also specifically look at the hypothesis that there's like voters just get more psyched up about voting. Uh, They indicate that that's not true. It is possibly true that political parties respond to voter ID laws by increasing their sort of contact effort uh, on on non-white voters. But either way, it does not reduce turnout. I mean, you could just see that turnout has gone up. These are more sophisticated mathematical methods. Um, and 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 it also doesn't reduce fraud. Um, So they end dryly by saying, overall, our findings suggest that efforts to improve elections may be better directed at other reforms. See, I find this depressing because we have this like vicious battle, right? Like constantly going on again, like not just in legislatures, but like in the takes domain about this thing, which like we a lot of scholarship has been done on this. And like it doesn't make a difference. You know, but it's like you would be treated as like the greatest traitor to mankind if you were to say like, yeah, I don't know, like if they want a voter ID law, like, let's just do it. So what? Uh, Right. It's like you're supposed to fight these laws, but also fight them armed with the knowledge that they don't make a difference, uh, which seems weird to me Um, when we could be focusing on trying to make it easier for people to get IDs, uh, which seems important because having a photo ID is important for many things in life. So, I mean, I guess my question about this and, you know, I, I think that the takeaway of this paper for me isn't so much the the null effect generally, or even the idea that if there's a mitigating effect, it's because parties are increasing their mobilization efforts. I think, you know, we had some knowledge in both of those directions. It's the fact that there's no change in 
either real fraud or perceived fraud. In other words, the very rationale being used to promulgate these laws doesn't update when the laws themselves are being passed, which not only raises serious questions about kind of like epistemologically, how are people, you know, like, how are people dealing with the, the, like, do people even know that things have changed? You know, what is the function, like, what purpose is this serving anyway? But also really would seem to threaten any subsequent efforts to, say, make IDs more widely available. Because if the presence of a voter ID law doesn't actually address concerns about voter fraud and you're trying to make IDs more accessible, how is that not going to get polarized along the exact same lines of the party trying to increase voter access is, in fact, trying to increase fraud? Yeah, the 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 finding that it doesn't improve trust kind of sets up the possibility of a downward cycling ratchet effect where uh, you pass a voter ID law, people still perceive there to be fraud inaccurately. That brings in calls for for new sort of anti-fraud measures and and you sort of get a self-sustaining cycle of of ever increasing uh, restrictions, which might veer into territory, unlike voter ID, that does meaningfully reduce access to voting. Uh, that would be a really bad outcome. I am really interested in this meta question Matt brought up about why you can't compromise on on stuff that doesn't matter like this. That that I, I think I I agree with him that I like if you if there was a bill in Congress that required that anyone voting in federal elections had to have an ID. And also that federal elections uh, districts had to be set by independent panels, not by state legislatures. Like, I would take that deal in a heartbeat. But I think part of why that kind of thing with those kinds of sort of meaningless symbolic giveaways doesn't happen is that there's there isn't a sense of reciprocity. And so I'm I'm more familiar with sort of how people think strategically about stuff, stuff like this on the left. I imagine there's a similar distrust uh, within conservative advocacy organizations. But I think if I went to someone at the Brennan Center and said, hey, why don't you offer that trade? They would say there's no Republicans who would take it. Either A, we we think it's really important for us to to keep fighting voter ID laws, in which case I would just disagree with them. But also there's there isn't a sense that you could get meaningful concessions. I was thinking about this on a totally different issue recently. Um, I fell down some rabbit hole of reading about uh, people in the gun world who are angry about rules about shoulder stocks, that you can't have uh, a really short barreled rifle under sort of 1930s gun laws, uh, but you can have a pistol that is as small as you want. And so there's this new trend of getting these like very short barreled AR-15 style rifles uh, but they don't have a shoulder stock. They have uh, a brace to put around your arm, and that makes them a pistol and not not a short barreled rifle. And I was reading this and reading these these gun aficionados being like, "This is ridiculous. I should just be able to buy a short barrel rifle. There's no reason to think that it would increase gun crime." And I re- hear that, and I'm like, "Yeah, that seems right. Like this seems like a a thing that you're you're doing for uh, your own enjoyment, and that, that won't have an effect on homicide rates." But I think similarly, if I were to go on behalf of the Brady campaign or whatever and suggest a trade of universal background checks for sort of allowing you to have more sort of, of these these sort of gun toys you want, nothing would come back. And and this might just be an observation about the nature of polarization, but it seems like there's just a lot less space to be making those kinds of deals where you give up something relatively costless. I mean, I agree on the level of, you know, well, okay, the Brennan Center is not going to, you know, endorse like totally hypothetical 
compromises, right? But, you know, we have various cross-pressured members of, of Congress, right? Various, yeah, you know, so people who see themselves as representing conservative jurisdictions will often make, I think, like quite costly policy concessions, you know, for the sake of, um, you know, trying to maintain their political viability or because they they agree on the merits, things like that. Whereas certain things, I mean, like this, this voting rights stuff, the voter ID stuff, I think has reached this kind of um, totemic status, you know, where it's not that like I necessarily expect liberals to be you know, I mean, who knows? Things get polarized and you can't reach a compromise, right? But it's like you want people who are friendly to your overall politics to win elections. And that means um, they might have to say some things that you don't necessarily agree with or like. Um, and I would really encourage people to, if they need to take conservative stances on some issues, to find issues like voter ID, where the conservative position is overwhelmingly popular, and there's very little reason to think that it causes uh, harm. But I see instead, like a lot of pressure. And again, I mean, not just from interest groups, but like from media coverage, right? Like the passage of new voter ID laws is routinely covered as a really big deal. And I sort of get it, right? It's not in your um, interest as a writer, to be like, this thing is not that big of a deal. Um, I, I know Dara has had um, in, in her Vox days some, you know, like somewhat bitter experience with like trying to write stories about like this thing that people are mad about is not that big of a deal. Um, and there are more clicks in being like, be mad all the time, guys, like be really, really mad. Uh, but you are, you know, the, the public is misinformed, I think, when you write up voter ID laws as like really dire forms of election suppression that foretell, you know, incredibly nefarious things. It's like pretty normal to have ID requirements for various kinds of things. And the consequences of requiring it just don't seem big. And I, I think it should be treated that way in line with the best factual evidence that is available to us. Right. I mean, if you if you get to the point where people are actually making arguments in favor of the maximalist strategy on voter ID opposition, you you'd get one of two things, right? You get either the argument that is similar to what we were kind of talking about in the first segments of this episode, that the reason to take maximalist stances on the efficacy of voter ID laws is because you normatively disagree with something. If you normatively disagree with them to begin with, then saying this will will give ammunition to the other side. That it could be that that knowledge could be used for for bad political purposes, which is an argument for a political actor, not for people who you know. It like arguably not for the general public, definitely not for people who uh, make a living you know like disseminating facts, um, but. The argument that that in turn relies on is that voter ID laws are normatively bad, not because in practice they suppress XYZ votes, but because we as a polity ought to oppose anything that says that something in addition to being a United States citizen it should be necessary in order to exercise your right to the franchise, that generally raising the barriers to voting is bad, regardless of how many people actually fall on the shoals of those new barriers. So the obvious kind of rejoinder to that is that if you want to have a normative argument, have a normative argument. And this is often where these kind of 
arguments over which facts you should or shouldn't be emphasizing come down to, right? Either the normative argument is good and should be made, or you worry that the public as a whole doesn't share your ideological preferences on this and therefore trying to find other ways to get what you want. But it does seem like suppressing or not talking honestly about a wealth of knowledge that says that voter ID laws are not substantially suppressive in their own right is like, doesn't seem like the best way to go because someone else is going to bring that knowledge out there if it is in fact politically useful to the other side at all. I also think... I think that this stuff, you know, by by like lumping together things that don't seem to matter empirically with other things, it it can create a very misleading impression to people. Like I'm reading this 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 uh, New York Times story about the political fight in in Texas over their sort of quote unquote election security package, and they have this info box that they title the battle over voting rights, and and there's a lot of stuff happening, and they you know bullet point different states, and so they say in Florida measures here include limiting the use of drop boxes, adding more identification requirements for absentee ballots, requiring voters to request an absentee ballot for each election, limiting who could collect and drop off boxes, and further empowering partisan observers during the ballot counting process, right? And so that stuff is all put sort of flat and on a plane. But like, there's no reason to think that requiring that you present ID in order to request an absentee ballot is like a big deal. The requiring of a new request for an absentee ballot each time, whether or not that has a big election impact, it's a big hassle. Right. Like that's one where if you're saying, look, just normatively, we shouldn't be making it harder to vote. You are like genuinely creating a lot of new difficulty in in people's lives, potentially for no reason. And that's like a story worth discussing separate from kind of partisan sniping. But then last, this thing about partisan observers in the ballot counting process, like this is where we get into like you could steal the election. Right. That like we are not going to have, you know, like fair, independent election administration, which is a like qualitatively different kind of discussion. And to just kind of lump it all in in like one giant sentence, you know, it's it's going to confuse one group of people. It's also going to lead another group of people to sort of turn this out. They'll be like, oh, I heard all this voter ID stuff was debunked which it was, uh, but there's like other stuff that is not debunked, right? Um, and that like, I think should be the subject of much, much, much more concern. And I don't know, I just like, I'm frustrated because this, I mean, the paper we're talking about is new, but like the research with this finding is not new um, and has been with us across multiple cycles and doesn't seem to me to make any difference in terms of how voter ID rules are like, processed in the press or in the political system. I do want to stress at the same time that like the open questions on voter ID laws are really important open questions. Like if the reason that we haven't seen an effect yet is because there were several elections where parties really saw voter ID laws like as an existential difficulty and therefore ramped up their contact campaigns in a way that ultimately made up for it. That requires a very, very different response to future voter ID laws from like parties than actually it didn't matter at all. And this increased contact didn't offset the voter ID law. Neither of those had any impact whatsoever. And, you know, beyond that, the, the question of 
of, of whether kind of more attention to voter ID laws was enough to have a mitigative effect, which this paper shows it wasn't particularly. It is pretty substantial and it does raise the kind of weird converse case that I haven't seen anyone look at that if voter ID laws were not posing a high barrier, but the media message that they were going to make it harder to vote was carried far enough, did they end up discouraging people on the margin? Because some voters may have thought, oh, I'm not going to bother to get a ballot because I hear it's really hard. And it would be good to know which which one of those is more likely to be the case, because certainly as far as like political actors are concerned, whether you think that hyping the effect of voter ID laws is the only way you can win in a voter ID state versus going to make your life harder because voter ID laws don't matter and people are going to get freaked out, like that matters a great deal. It, it does. And... <laughs> I mean, I, I think to, to Matt's point about flattening, it it matters, but it matters as part of a, a small part of a much bigger picture. And I think what's sometimes frustrating to me in, in seeing coverage of things like uh, House Bill 1, Senate Bill 1, is that my sort of number one thing in looking at these bills is that there we do not have a system of one person, one vote in, in the U.S. Congress. Uh, and uh, the Senate in particular is is deeply biased toward uh, small states, uh, sort of rural whites against people of color and and immigrants. And so I want to correct that. And so the, the thing that does that is adding Puerto Rico and, and D.C. And even that doesn't correct the bias entirely, but it's by far the most important thing for that. It's just sort of... Uh, it's immensely frustrating <laughs> to to watch them like going into these knockdown dryout fights over like voter ID, even if it mattered, would be worth like a tenth of a senator, maybe. DC and Puerto Rico statehood is four senators. It's just un- like many orders of magnitude more important, even by very sort of expansive views of of what matters about voter ID. And I don't know. I, I wish we could have a more focused discussion about that and about the effects of gerrymandering in the House rather than throwing all these into a package when they're really not similar, not similar in their scales or their effects. Also, to that point, right? I mean, one of the things that you that you see here is that you have certain rules in place and you have a community of attorneys whose job is to sue um, things about the rules that exist. And there is no legal theory by which a lawsuit is going to get a binding referendum to turn Puerto Rico into a state, right? So there's no litigation on that. There's no litigation for D.C. statehood. Uh, We had partisan gerrymandering litigation, but it lost uh, under a more favorable Supreme Court. So people who like to do lawsuits have sort of <laughs> given up on that stuff. Whereas there is a lot of active litigation around small ball uh, election administration stuff, right? Like people have won uh, lawsuits around that. It is their job as election lawyers to do lots and lots of lawsuits around relatively unimportant election administration stuff, which is fine. I mean, like that, that literally is their job. But then you get this kind of capture where like what they are doing attracts a lot of attention and doing takes that align with what election lawyers are doing becomes like being someone who is supportive of the democracy agenda. And this stuff that Dylan is talking about that is quantitatively much more important. And that one reason that it's important is that it's like not 
subject to litigation. Like Congress can make DC and Puerto Rico states and nobody else can, which is like one reason why it's incredibly important (laughs) for Congress to do the things that Congress can actually do. But it like falls out of the agenda because there's not this like long PDF about it, or, you know, a set of people who are professionally invested in kind of sweating these things. And it's not like it's not their fault for focusing on the things that are under their control. But it's bad to like to let the tail wag the dog in in this sense, right? That like, what happens in super duper 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 close elections? You know, it matters. Right. But it matters less than like huge structural biases in the system that just by like non small amounts. Right. Joe Biden could have won the popular vote by three points and still lost the presidential election. And, you know, that would have made all this stuff about like stealing the election or vote suppression and all that other kind of thing totally irrelevant. But it's like really unfair. It's a really big deal for the American political system. And it is like so much more concrete manifestation of like structural bias in American society than a lot of much smaller disparate impact things uh, that you will find out there that just like city dwellers and non-white people uh, have their votes like massively diluted in the legislature. That's what I have to say. You said this was going to be an optimistic segment. Dylan promised optimism. Bills that seem bad might not be super bad is my optimistic read. And perhaps we should end it on that sunny note. (laughs) Nice. Okay, I like it. Um, Well, thanks, everyone, uh, for listening. Uh, You know, recommend our sunny optimism to all your friends and, uh, you know, get get the world out there. Thanks, Dylan, for joining us. Thanks, as always, to our sponsors, to our producer, Eric Janakis. And the Weeds will be back on Friday.